2: Thank you for joining us today here at Dr. Hootsie's Wellness Revolution. I'm Stacey Banfield here with Dr. Stephen Hotze, founder of the Hoetze Health and Wellness Center. And just as a reminder to everybody, to download our podcasts, all you have to do is go on to hoetzepodcast.com. That's H-O-T-Z-E podcast.com. I am so excited today. One of our favorite guests that we've had on before, Dr. Bregan, is our guest today. And he is the author of Medication Madness, such a wealth of information about antidepressants. Certainly an eye-opener. Yes, we have the book right here. So, Dr. Hotze, why don't we uh, talk to Dr. Bregan see what he has to say about antidepressants.
0: Well, I'm, we have as our guest today Dr. Peter Bregan. He's a medical doctor. He's a psychiatrist, and he's an expert in clinical psychopharmacology. He's a former teaching fellow at the Harvard Medical School, a full-time consultant at the National Institute of Mental Health. He's written numerous scientific articles and books that deal with the dangerous and adverse effects of the psychi- psychiatric, psychotropic drugs that have been produced by the drug companies. And, of course, the most common ones now are the SSRIs, uh, antidepressants, and uh that are on the market, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute, and there are adverse effects. Interesting, Dr. Bregan has known how these drugs cause call what we'll what he calls medical spellbinding, and they, once people get on these drugs, it can absolutely change their personality and their behavior and cause them to do things they would never do otherwise. You know, suicides, homicides, outbursts of anger, Irritable, strange activity, hearing voices, uh, psychosis. And so he testifies in trials where individuals who have been spellbound by these drugs involuntarily because the doctors gave it to them and they had some kind of run-in or problems with the police, and then he's been able to testify on behalf of these various uh, individuals to show how these drugs these drugs, which were involuntarily taken, I mean, they were. The doctor told them to do it, so they just expected that everything would be okay. My doctor told me to take these drugs; everything will be fine. And they took them, and it caused all kinds of aberrant behavior. So tragic. And so there have been some tragic stories. Anyway, Doctor Bregan, welcome to Hotzy Wellness Solution. Welcome, or I should say, well, Hotzy Wellness Revolution. Too. It's a revolution. <laughs>
2: It's a revolutionary solution.
0: Dr. Dr. Bragan, let me tell you, you have a most remarkable story about how you got interested in psychiatry to begin with. Why don't you take us back to high school and tell us what you did, and where were you you living at the time, and what did you end up doing? Well, high
1: school, I was out on Long Island um, when it was still farmland out there. I went to Harvard, feeling a little bit overwhelmed at the Prospect my small uh, high school and um, in the first few weeks i was studying a lot trying to keep up with my work and i thought i'd probably become a professor of history and literature or something along those lines and a friend of mine invited me out to uh the local state mental hospital where he and his brother were starting a mental hospital volunteer program um, <laughs> it was just uh, outside of uh, cambridge and um Within a few months, I got more and more involved with it. Eventually, I became uh, one of the leaders, and then I actually chaired the program for a while and actually came up with the idea for my first book way back then uh, that was published about college students in a mental hospital. And I, when I stepped onto the wards, I was just appalled by what I saw. I hadn't had any training to get me used to this kind of horrendous situation. Uh, and what the wards looked like to me in this giant concrete lockup, uh, where thousands of people were kept in uh, uh, virtual confinement, uh, often in, in cement-like <laughs> dungeon-like wards, uh, it struck me like my uncle Dutch's my uncle Dutch's description of liberating a Nazi concentration
2: camp. Oh my goodness!
1: I was I was ten years old when I heard those stories, and the, <clears throat> the only time I ever saw anything that was so similar. For stepping onto those hospital wards and there's actually a history behind that that's probably another show I've written about it um, on my website bregan.com but the uh, the the uh, in Europe the um, state mental hospitals were actually used at the very beginning of the Holocaust uh, which started with the doctors killing their mental patients it didn't start with the uh, killing of Jews'm I'm, I'm Jewish I look carefully into it started with the euthanasia of of mental patients on a massive scale in state mental hospitals. And so there's actually, I didn't know at the time, a historical continuity between uh, the image of these places looking like concentration or extermination camps, the state hospitals, and they're actually being the very first ones uh, before Hitler even got involved in, in the programs of mass extermination. So, you know, I, I saw a shock treatment. I saw insulin coma where patients were overdosed with insulin until they would fall on the floor, writhing, and then lying still in a coma. And um, I, I saw the results of lobotomy. And there was no way to convince a, a young kid like me that this made any sense. I mean, I really think that for that to make sense to you, you've got to have your, your brain reconfigured by years of education. It was obviously harming the patients. It was obviously intimidating them and uh, making them passive and helpless. And uh, obviously was not in their interest at all, nor were these horrible conditions. And when the, I got to know the doctors, I became the leader of the program. I had access to the superintendent's office, the clinical director's office. Eventually we stole the keys. And we thought <laughs> oh my- we'd been given them So. <laughs> it looked like I was supposed to have keys dangling from from my belt, and I could like go anywhere in the hospital. We set up a program where we work with individual patients. Which my, uh, my first political experience of psychiatry was the resistance we got from the Boston Psychoanalytic Association because young Harvard students were going to talk, would have their own patients to talk to every week. Imagine that these sons of guns—they never went into the hospital to talk to patients. They didn't. You know they were sitting in their offices making as much money as they could, and then to everybody's dismay, we we, uh, we had 15 students and 15 patients, and we got almost every single one out of the hospital in the first year.
2: Oh my goodness! So the program wow.
1: became yeah, it was it was stunning. It was it was it made so clear that what human beings needed was other human beings to give them support and help and direction. Mm-hmm. That's it was exact- so clear. Oh, sure That's they well needed said. to be
0: engaged, somebody to be engaged in their lives that cared about them. Everybody wants to feel. Understood, listened to, cared for, affirmed, you know. And uh, when you're, yeah, and when, when you're,
1: you're very badly harmed by by your own problems or by a physical illness, many of these patients have dementia, and mostly harmed by the drugs and the confinement. You need somebody to help you get free, <laughs> and, and to support you, in, in getting away from quote the treatment.
0: So that was in your. That was while you were in. Uh, in school, at the College. university at Harvard, College. right? And so yeah. you you worked yeah. there, you worked there at the state mental institution in a volunteer program, or were you on, on paid staff?
1: No, this is a volunteer program that uh, basically started about the year that I joined it, and then I ended up running it. I got scholarships from NIMH and Harvard to spend my summers working. I mean, I really got involved in these volunteer well, yeah, I mean, you think, really? And,
0: who, here, hey, Doc, let me just tell you, who does that? How, who do I know? I don't know anybody. I know some people that have a prison ministry and go to prisons. I don't know a soul, or I've ever heard of a soul that's operated and run a program, volunteer program, to help people in the state psychiatric wards. That's just unheard of. So God must have put that on your heart at a very young age and gave you a tenderness towards that because I guess. If you look back, he was preparing you for further work you were going to be doing. So you went through you went through uh, Harvard and graduated. Where did you attend med school?
1: Um, I went to medical school at Case Western Reserve in Ohio. Right, it's Cleveland. Good school, and it, yeah, Cleveland. And it had a special program where you could do research during your four years, and and uh, actually, I got I, I published articles out of my medical school research. But then I was looking also at animals and how to drugs affect animals because i'd gotten very interested in this and if it were going to med school but i knew i basically wanted to be a therapist um and that was my plan i planned to go into a psychiatric residency and to uh, to be a psychotherapist and at that point in time the best program in the country was back at harvard and um, i went there and took for my first year a uh, I applied, and I was interviewed by a family therapist, and I thought, gee, Harvard's really psychologically oriented. This is great. And it was bait and switch. By the time I got there the next year, it had been taken over by the druggers. Mm. Oh, wow. In one year. See, this is not science. This is politics. Right. In one year. It was, it was, politics, great point.
0: And in, in what runs politics? The almighty dollar. So there were some drug well, companies exactly. that were pouring some money in there and said, we'll pour money in there if you'll change your – program so it was not based upon counseling or psychological you know psychiatric counseling but rather let's base it on drugs.
1: It was absolutely the case and um, uh, the, the uh, <clears throat> clinical director I knew from college when he'd been uh, a little bit less than the clinical director and he later became the head of NIMH his name was Jerry Clareman and I said Jerry said well Peter what's your what are your goals here I mean he knew I'd been running this program at was Harvard supervised? We had a, a professors at Harvard who helped me get into med school, um, and um, I said, "Well, Jay, I want to work with human beings, and I want to do therapy, and I want to develop new ideas about human nature and human psychology, and and, uh, and just you know continue the progress that has been building over over uh, decades and centuries, and trying to understand people and help them." And he said, "Peter, that's a waste of your time." Psychiatry is going to go toward, we're put, it's going toward um, medications and the diagnoses generated by computers.
0: Now, did y- did, now, this day. was back in what year was this? This would have been 19...
1: 19- this is, ni- this is as, as long ago as 1962
0: and 63. So the it was already in the works that psychiatry was no longer going to be based upon trying to help people overcome their problems through so-called psychotherapy or, or psychiatric counseling and to help them come grip with their problems. Rather, they were going to give diagnose, make up some diagnoses for which they could have a CPT code and for which they could give drugs.
1: Yes. And they literally were anticipating you might, might not even need a psychiatrist to be able to use a computer. This was right out of industry. This was industrialization of psychiatry mm-hmm. and uh, And Jerry Claremont later went on and became director of NIMH. He really was a key figure, but it was all the drug company behind it. That I've tracked so much in my book, Toxic Psychiatry, and now other people have written books tracking how much this was a collaboration between the American Psychiatric Association and all the drug companies to uh, restore psychiatry to its position of power and to crush psychotherapy. In fact, I had planned to go there because it was psychologically oriented. I wanted to get more and more training in psychotherapy. And they passed a rule that you could only see two patients long term in your entire first year. And you could only have one supervisor. I mean, it was like a rule to keep us from going in the therapy direction. And I actually bootlegged (laughs) supervision because the supervisors didn't have many students anymore. They loved my... Engaging the patients, and I was so enthusiastic, and so I had like three or four supervisors but I was only supposed to have one. It was a bizarre situation. It was just so destructive, and um, I eventually left Harvard. Then I, uh, when I finished my training, I went to the National Institute of Mental Health because no one yet knew quite how, my, how radical my views would be in their eyes. I, you know, I was a good student and. I went to NIMH for two years, and I was in the public health service while I was there. And and there I would just witness the dismantling, further dismantling of the whole psychological and social approach to helping people and the replacement of it with drugs. And somewhere over those decades, the, our volunteer program, which was written up in 1962 and 63, as one of the solutions to the mental health crisis um, that eventually, you know, went its way and disappeared because the new theme was you can't talk to mental patients. You have to medicate them.
0: Right. So you you're what? tell us about that article. You had an article with a solution to the mental health problem. What was that?
1: Well, I mean, the there was, well, I wrote articles and we wrote the book, but there was also this big, it was the last psychological and social book put out by the federal government programs. And it was a book about uh, a big committee on mental health, and that book cited us as one of the uh, one of the potential solutions to helping people in a way that was affordable, which was by training volunteers. So it was cutting edge at the time, but it. Uh, and now I'm trying to go back to it. I'm trying to figure out new ways of training uh, people without their having to get a lot of training and uh, going to school and developing, you know, lots of um, uh, debt and, you know, then having to charge lots of money. I'm trying to develop some programs uh, with a colleague of mine that will teach people psychotherapy uh, on the basis of their being good people, not on the basis of they having PhDs. But right. it's a continuation yeah. of that that I'm coming back to now. That's great. But everything was basically taken over by the, the drugs, as the companies, as you know.
0: And so tell us about the drugs now that are in, uh, used in psychiatric practice, we see them all the time, and people know what. Know the first, of course, the first major SSRI, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressant, was Prozac, and and then there's Effexor, there's Paxil, there's Celebrex. I mean, we've got a whole, a whole, we got a whole garden variety. Zoloft, we got it, scores but, of yeah. which are all. Right. Reuptake inhibitors, which yeah, doctor,
1: you, you misspoke. You said you said Celebrex, and I know you meant Celexa. I mean Celexa. So of Cele- yeah. Celebrex, you don't want
0: people to take Celebrex, right? Celebrex. You can even take yeah. Celebrex. Celebrex is, yeah. is an anti-inflammatory. Sorry, Celexa. So yeah. anyway, these these drugs are they affect the neurotransmitters in the brain? Explain now. They don't know if you go to a PDR, Physicians Desk Reference, which every doctor has which lists all the drugs that are commercially available. If you look up the antidepressants, the common antidepressants, it says the mode of action is not known. They don't know the mode of action. But explain that, doctor. They don't know the mode of action, but yet they say, well, it helps raise your serotonin level. It's a serotonin uptake inhibitor. It raises some of them. block the reuptake of dopamine. Well, it's a dopamine inhibitor, and if you have more dopamine, you're going to feel better. You got to take these drugs. Now, let me mention something. I wrote in my book, Hypothyroidism, Health and Happiness, about the public health disaster of the current antidepressants. really any antidepressants. You don't want to put anything in your body that's going to affect your neurotransmitters in your brain, friends. You just don't want to do that. So, if some doctor says, "Well, everybody's supposed to feel the way you feel, honey, I just think you need a little prozac and you'll get a lot better That's what we give them all. They give it out like candy isn't that right, doctor? They give this stuff out like candy in the doctor's offices. but in my book, I wrote about what? the public health I wrote about the public health disaster, and I went and I googled the molecule cocaine, and then I googled the molecules for all these SSRI inhibitors, these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Now, cocaine is a broad uh, reuptake inhibitor of all the neurotransmitters, so it has a very similar effect, but these are selective. So I looked at the molecules, and the similarity is striking. There may be a side chain put on the cocaine molecule that now makes it another drug, which the drug companies, I think, they looked at the market. It's a $70 billion market for cocaine in America. They wanted some of the market. What do they do? They do a knockoff cocaine, and then they put it through FDA trial and say, well, it works better than a placebo, and they start passing it out like candy, and they get FDA approval, and now they've cut into the market making tens of billions of dollars off individuals who have, you know, some kind of, they don't, hey, the diagnosis for for depression, if you just feel tired and you can't lose weight and you have recurrent headaches and you can't think clearly and your blood tests are normal, by diagnosis, by definition, according to the American Psychiatric Association, you're depressed. It's not that you're getting older and your hormones are going down and you're not eating right and you need vitamins and minerals. No, you need an antidepressant. And that's what they give these patients. And the And these drugs, my friends, these drugs, these antidepressants are highly addictive. We know that because, doctor, tell us about the withdrawal effects that people have. Tell us about the side effects when people get on these antidepressants and when they try to get off the antidepressants. Explain to us what happens. And explain to us about medication spellbinding, too. That's a very interesting term that you've developed.
1: Well, let me start by confirming your comparison between uh, the uh, newer antidepressants, not just the SSRIs, but pretty much most of the newer ones, and cocaine. Cocaine, of course, is extremely similar to methamphetamine and amphetamine, which we give to our children. When Prozac was first developed, there The doctor in charge of evaluating its adverse effects at the FDA was named Richard Capet. And before the drug was approved, Capet noticed that they were getting a lot of reports that were showing the drug could have cocaine-like, or in his terms, amphetamine-like, it's identical, amphetamine-like effects, and that this could cause depressed patients to get worse. Because these, these effects included um, insomnia, agitation, anxiety, weight loss, all these basic amphetamine effects, and crashing into worse depression and into a depression that is agitated, which is a very dangerous kind of a depression in terms of suicide when you're both depressed and highly agitated and energized. And he tried to get the FDA to acknowledge this and put it in the drug description, and they refused. And furthermore, the drug was so stimulating that they couldn't get patients to stay in the trials; they were dropping out. So they cheated statistically in a few different ways, but the most amazing thing they did was they illegally put the Prozac patients. This is on the studies that. The, the studies that went on before approval, they put them on sedatives and, and benzodiazepines to calm them down because they were like dropping that, out of these benzo, very short trials.
0: Right, the benzodiazepine folks are like Valium or like uh, yeah. Xanax Zanax, or, or even Ativan, the- Ativan, yeah, Right, and all that, as well as the sleep medication, Ambien and uh, Linestra, I believe, are both benzodiazepines.
1: Well, they're, they're similar to the benzos, yes. Um, so they were—they knew from the beginning in the drug company all the dangers they were creating. They knew at the FDA, and they just suppressed it and put the drug on the market. And then it started causing so much trouble. that doctors started figuring out, well, we better give sedatives to these patients as soon as we start them. So now a lot of times you'll get started on a, on a Luvox or, Selex or Effects or, or one of those drugs, and it'll also give you something to. Calm your doubt at the same time. It's just bizarre. And in fact, the drugs didn't work. My analysis showed that the drugs were no better than placebo and um, that they couldn't even get them to stay in the trials without drugging them to make them more calm. So the whole big splurge of billions and billions of dollars about these new drugs is all based on uh, bad science and corrupt science. It's uh, a terrible thing. Then in the early 1990s, I was asked to be the um, the scientist to evaluate Prozac for well over 150 studies, not studies, lawsuits against Eli Lilly. And what were the lawsuits for? It was, from, was something I'd been talking about, right? Violence, suicide, and also getting jacked up into mania and being completely out of control, like through an amphetamines. And um, then I saw more corruption, collusion between. Uh, lawyers for one, both sides, you know, in order to protect the drug, it was just horrific. They spent billions, I think, just getting the drug, protecting the drug once it got uh, approved.
0: And um, let, let me uh,
1: written, written about that in various places. Right. Yeah.
0: Let me interrupt here and just let our listening audience know that when the FDA approves a drug, it doesn't do a study on the drug they lead the study up to the pharmaceutical company. And the pharmaceutical companies will have groups of doctors around the country on a new drug. And you've heard advertisements on the radio about it. If you're having this or that problem, come in on a drug trial and we'll try you on the drug. Well, what happens if if the drug in these various centers across the country isn't showing up well in one center and the doctor says, boy, you know what about, I'm getting a bunch of people Committing suicide, my suicide rate's going up, you know. I haven't seen anything like that. By the way, in Prozac, the suicide rate on Prozac increased six times. So they said people were depressed and they needed an antidepressant. Why in the world would you take a toxic chemical that increased your risk of killing yourself six times? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So anyway, the drug companies, they have these various trials, and if they don't get from any trial across the country good results, they deep six it. The doctor that runs a trial has a contract with him that he can never say what the results were. And then they'll find some doctor who realizes that where his bread is buttered, and guess what? They'll have one trial that'll show that the drug is better than a placebo. And to, it, it, doesn't, it just has to be slightly better. And once they show that, they turn that study into the FDA, and then they get approval. Now, in Europe... In, in England, all the trials have to be turned in. But in America, it's only one trial, and the drug companies do the trial. And if you know the drug companies, here's what they do. They, and I have a, I have a, a lady that worked for me. Uh, she was a, a physician's assistant, had worked for a drug company in England, and they manipulated the trials, and they told her to manipulate the trials and manipulate the, the numbers. You know, they say there are three kinds of liars. There's there's liars, dying liars, and statisticians, and the statisticians can make the statistics look however they want them to look, and that's what they've done with these drugs to get them uh, on the market to get them approved by the FDA and the drug and the FDA has drug approval committees. Well, guess who sits on the drug approval committees? The majority of the people are either employed by or consultants of pharmaceutical companies. It's like the fox guarding the hen house. The <laughs> yeah, fox guarding their hen house. Uh, and so when all this came out about Prozac in 1994, they had a big hearing trying to say, you know, we got to take this off the market. we got to put a black label on it. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. It wasn't until, I think, 2004 and 2005. And you may have testified before that committee, Dr. Bregan, did you?
1: Yes, I did. And one of my articles was given to every single committee member, which was a real shocker for me. And um, the new warnings read like that article of mine. So it's so odd, you know, you get an effect here and there. I was astonished, but I was asked to, to, you know, send like 25, package of 25 of my articles Uh, one article and it was distributed to the special package that the uh, committee had. Now, was this in 2004,
0: 2005? Is that when that was? Yep. Okay. Yep. And then what the FDA did, here we are about, you know, 14 or 15 years after Prozac has been on the market. Finally, finally, they put a black label on it that says this drug basically says this drug may increase suicidal ideation, which they knew that before they even put the drug on the market. And people have been complaining about that and doctors have been seeing that happen. Well doctor, tell us tell us some other side Let of- me
1: give you a tweak let me give you a tweak on that, which is really interesting. First the FDA actually reevaluated itself and supervised the reevaluation of all the old data for children and youth and found a doubling of the In these little tiny trials, which were intended to cover up things like suicide, they found a doubling of the suicide rate. So then when it came to reevaluating the adults, the FDA was under such pressure not to hurt the drug companies that they said, okay, we'll let the drug companies evaluate what happens with the adults because there's too much data for us to handle. And nobody knows, except me, and I've written a blog about it, that that's how... They ended up not finding increased suicide in adults, but only in children and youth, because the adult part was done by the drug companies.
0: There you have so it. it, and it's interesting. Doctor,
1: it's just so bizarre. No, it's it's, uh, it's
0: it's not bizarre. It's corrupt. It's criminal. It's these, corrupt. These 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 drug cart the, these drug companies here in the United States are legalized drug cartels. They're no different than the cartels south of the border bringing co- t- cocaine. They have simply got. Their knockoff cocaine, amphetamine-type drugs legalized by the FDA so they can pass them out. And guess who the drug pushers are? The doctors. doctors. The doctors are the drug pushers. They're pushing the drugs because they have the sales representatives come by. When I started in practice back, in my own practice back in the early 80s, the people that came in with drug companies were kind of middle-aged guys. But within about 10 years or 12 years— They had the most beautiful, drop-dead, gorgeous blondes and brunettes, you know, with long eyelashes and had woo and personality. They came in, oh, doctor. And that's what they did to be able to get into the doctors. That's how they, I mean, they sold basically sex is what they did to sell their drugs. And they had to make sure that no drug representative had any scientific background. I've got friends that have gone to the, that were drug representatives and they were they were told never to ask questions. They didn't know anything about science. The the talking points were given by the drug companies, and they went in and gave those talking points. Well, here in our oh, absolutely here back in our practice in about mean, in 1994, somewhere in that year 1995, we banned all drug representatives from ever setting foot in the Holsey Health and Wellness Center. No drug rep can walk in our <laughs> office. We don't see them.
1: Let me confirm something that people may be doubting you about. Earlier, you said there was a six times increase in the suicidality uh, on Prozac. And folks are going to say, well, where does that come from? What is he talking about? We don't even have evidence about adults getting suicide." blah, blah, blah. Um, one of the things I found out when I was the scientific expert reviewing all these cases, all the scientific evidence, I got to look inside the secret files of Eli Lilly, the manufacturer of Prozac, and I found out that they had done a study at the request of Germany to look at the clinical trials to see how many suicide attempts they had in their trials. I imagine they'd never done that. So they did a study of their trials and they found that compared to the older antidepressants and compared to placebo, depending on how you counted, Trozak was six to 12 times uh, more powerful in producing suicidal activity, not just ideation. It wasn't. It was about activity, suicide attempts until Eli Lilly completely hid the data it's up on my website. I've talked about it in front of the FDA. I've invited the FDA to have me come talk about the data years and years ago. And of course they didn't respond at all, but folks, Dr. Hoti's data on that's correct. absolutely correct. Come right out of Eli Lilly and thus are in four to six week trials. Very short trials, as long as they study the drug. And a lot of the patients getting sedatives to calm them down. So one last word about withdrawal because uh, let's make sure we get that in. It's unsafe to withdraw just like it's unsafe to start drugs. It's unsafe to change doses. Everything you do to either jack your brain up or down with most psychiatric drugs and and certainly with the antidepressants uh, endangers the brain, the mind, and your behavior. And what you tend to get is the opposite of a drug effect. So when you take amphetamines, which Dr. Holtz made a very sound comparison to the antidepressants, you take take the uh, amphetamines and they make you high and they make you feel driven and they make you feel like a go-getter. And you stop them abruptly and you crash into suicidal depression because the brain was fighting against the stimulation. The brain doesn't like psychoactive drugs, it fights them. So it was fighting the stimulation. And in fighting it, the brain becomes more depressed, more subdued, and it crashes when the corresponding balance is removed. And the same thing is the major danger with coming off the antidepressants. You can crash into depression and suicide. I've also paradoxically seen people get very angry and and even manic, so it's unpredictable. So don't just stop your psychiatric drugs when you listen to our conversation. Right. Realize that you need good supervision and a lot of care and a lot of time in removing yourself from psychiatric right.
0: drugs. Right. What he's basically saying is they ha- you have to be weaned off these drugs, and that's... So very important. So we're not recommending if you're on uh, antidepressants that you stop them, but what you need to do is find out what was the underlying cause of your health issues, address the underlying cause, the diagnosis. Could be hormonal imbalance and decline, low thyroid, which is very common in America and goes undiagnosed because doctors look strictly at blood tests rather than clinical symptoms. Could be... You know, you lack the proper vitamins and minerals and nutrients. You are eating unhealthy. All these things can cause you, as you age, to feel unhealthy. And the solution, nobody is unhealthy because they have low levels of antidepressants in their body. That's the one message I want to get get through to you. And uh, I wanted to bring on Dr. Bregan because he is an expert in this. And you can go to his website, which is Bregan, dot com. right? Yes, that's it. Doctor, you know www.bregan.com, and get a wealth of information to get copies of his books. Uh, he's got several books. Uh, the book that we have here is "Medication Madness," but he's written "Talking it's Back," a fascinating to, book. Yeah, "Talking Back to Prozac and Toxic Psychiatry." These are books you ought to read and educate yourself on, and don't let your doctor throw you on or push these antidepressants on you because you'll regret it. It'll turn you into a zombie. It'll turn you into, it can turn you into a completely different person that your spouse never thought they had married, you know. and I mean, these drugs destroy marriages. They destroy lives. It's sad, and we're doing everything we can to stand up and warn the public about the deleterious and harmful side effects of these drugs. Address the underlying problems that you have. Don't try to mask them with Amphetamine like psychoactive drugs like the current antidepressants on the market. Doctor, last word.
1: Well, I think you're doing good work, and it's, you know, my own emphasis is very much on the psychological and social aspects of life because the vast majority of people I see have reasons for being depressed. They're going through tough marriages, they've overspent, and now they're concerned about uh, whether they can support themselves and their families. Um, some of them have lost jobs, others are struggling with childhood trauma. So to uh, Dr. O'Khotse's observations, I want to add that life, life is hard and life causes suffering and we can grow past it uh, by reading and studying, by spirituality, by, uh, you know, good nutrition, is tremendously important. All of life is, all of life, Is how we have to go about lifting ourselves out of depression and not with artificial substances. Dr.
0: Dr. Bregan, I just want to congratulate you on your outstanding work and the outspoken leadership and advocacy you have had for those patients that have been mistreated by conventional doctors and psychiatrists in the medical profession by giving them harmful psychiatric drugs. Thank you, Dr. Bregan, for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me on.
2: And if you would like to find out more information about getting healthy and well naturally, it would be such a privilege to serve you. You can give us a call today at 281-698-8698. Again, that's 281-698-8698. We'd also love to give you a complimentary copy of Dr. Hoetze's best-selling book, Hormones, Health, and Happiness. Well, was such a privilege being able to be with you today on Dr. Hoetze's Wellness Revolution. Everyone out there, have a blessed day. Thank you all.